Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 3. And Paul says here, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This morning we began to consider what is called human nature in its fourfold state. And that thought is based on the theology of Augustine in the early 5th century, and then later by the famous book of the Puritan Thomas Boston, written in 1720, entitled Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. And this morning we looked at the first two states of human nature, the first being man in his innocence, as Adam and Eve were first made in the Garden of Eden, in perfect moral purity, righteousness, God could look upon them and say, that it was they were very good in his sight, very well-pleasing in every way. Adam fell into sin, and that brought us into the second state of the human race, which is called man, which we call man in sin. And the great question when we come to man in sin is what is the effects of the fall and how bad was man's fall into sin. And we saw from different passages that what Augustine stated in the Latin language as non posse, non pecera, meaning that man is not able not to sin, meaning that man is, it is impossible for man not to sin because he is in a state of bondage to sin. He is the slave of sin, and he can do nothing that is pleasing in the sight of God in his state of sin. And that is really what the Apostle Paul describes here in verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians chapter 2. He tells us here that we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and in our sins. He uses this analogy of death to show us how helpless and without any strength, man is by nature. A dead man is incapable of doing anything that is good. He has no strength and he has no power in himself. And so it is with every man and woman by nature. We are incapable of having any desire, any motion toward God and movement toward him. We are unable to deliver ourselves from this power of death. The devil is described here as ruling over us. And so as we look at everything that is said here in verses 1 through 3, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, living under the power of the prince of the air, indulging the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
even as the rest, as we read these verses, the question must be, what hope is there for any man or woman in this world? All of this is true of every one of us. And what is the way? Is there any way of deliverance for us? Not a single good thing can be said about us by nature here in verses 1 through 3 because there is no good thing that is within us in God's sight. A more desperate situation there could not be than what the apostle describes here. There is not a single ray or glimmer of any hope that can be found in verses 1 through 3. The only hope now comes In the beginning of verse 4, in those two little words that begin verse 4 where the apostle says, but God. And here in those two words, but God, the entire gospel and all the good news of the gospel is contained. Because the gospel is not about what is what man can do or any goodness in man. The gospel is all about God and who he is, and what he can do. But God, says the apostle, he begins here to point us to the only one who has the power of resurrection to raise dead men out of their sin by his love and grace to rescue them from the devil's kingdom and from the power of sin. We are all born in this state this most dreadful spiritual state. If there is to be any hope for us, it must come from outside of ourselves. It must be by God's intervention. The only way of escape for us out of that state is but God. Dead under the power of sin, the only hope is God to come and raise us from the dead. So the apostle here in this passage, in the first three verses, he has been looking downward and he has focused upon man and what is in man and what hopelessness there is there. But now in verse four and following, he turns in another direction upward and he brings us now into what God can do. And he tells us now in verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. What a most marvelous thing the apostle begins to speak of here. The love of God Despite what we are in verses 1 through 3, yet he is rich in love and mercy and grace toward us. He speaks here of a spiritual resurrection that God does in his people. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. In other places of the Bible, this spiritual resurrection is called regeneration or the new birth. Sometimes it is called the new creation. It is the beginning of a whole new life. It is a radical transformation from death unto life. A new nature is planted within us 
and a great renewal begins with this regeneration. A definitive break from our past life in which we were once slaves of sin, now we become slaves of righteousness. It is a change in kingdoms from the kingdom of Satan in darkness to the kingdom of Christ and his light. It is what Ezekiel spoke of in chapter 36 and verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, God said, and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So those two little words in the beginning of verse 4 point us to the only source of hope for the human race. To be taken out of that wrath that we were under at the end of verse 3, children of wrath, even as the rest, and to be brought under grace, the grace of God at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. This is how we have been saved, by grace, not by works. And this is sovereign, free, unmerited grace to those who do not deserve it. That's what grace is. Grace is God coming to those who do not deserve anything and having free mercy and kindness upon them. Those described in verses 1 through 3, if we were to get what we deserve from God, it would be the wrath of God at the end of verse 3. Can anyone in verses 1 through 3 claim any merit before God? No, salvation must come to them by grace. If any of them are to be saved, they must be saved by grace and by grace alone. By grace you have been saved, Paul says. Despite everything said in verses 1 through 3, God has great love and mercy and grace upon sinners to give them new life and bring them to salvation. It is a powerful, effectual grace. When God gives life to the dead, they live. No man, no dead man can resist the life-giving power of God. And this brings us into this third of the four states of the human race. The four states of man, the third now is what we will call man under grace. And this is how it begins here in this regeneration, in this new spiritual life. After regeneration, Augustine, Augustine rather, called this third state of mankind, posse pecera and non pecera. 
which means able to sin. Man under grace is able to sin and able not to sin. Before salvation, we were able only to sin. Now, under grace, we are still able to sin, but we are also able not to sin. Now, we are still able to sin because of remaining sin in us. The process of renewal has only begun. It is not yet complete. And when Augustine said that we are able not to sin, he did not mean that we are able to be sinless or to walk in perfection in this life. But what he meant was that for the first time we are able to begin to obey God. And we are able for the first time to be able to do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Thomas Boston called this third state begun recovery. It is the beginning of the renewal. And we are increasingly drawn out of our corruption in sin. More and more in a life of holiness. Progressively we die to self and to the world. And we live more and more for Christ. It is a lifelong process which begins at regeneration and only ends in the life to come. We often call it sanctification, sometimes growth in grace. God works this process in us, this renewal, by the means that he has appointed, the word of God, prayer, worship, fellowship, all of these things under the continuing power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We have sunk ourselves into this terrible state described in verses 1 through 3. But God said, I will not let all my image bearers perish in that pit of sin. I will come to them in love and rescue them. They are dead, they are defiled and polluted, but I do love them and I will deliver them and I will bring them out of that state and I will bring them under my grace. When we were in sin, our minds were in darkness and we could not see or understand the things of God. The natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. But under grace, our minds are enlightened. Our eyes are opened, and for the first time, we begin to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the gospel. When we were in sin, our wills were enslaved. We were bound, but under grace our wills are set free, and we are now able to walk, to begin to walk in the ways of righteousness. When we were in sin, our affections, in our affections we loved sin and we hated God. But now, under grace, in our affections, we begin to love God and to hate sin. When Paul says in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. If we could read the original language, we would see that the verb saved is in the perfect tense. 
And what that means is that we now stand in this present state that is the result, the permanent result of a past action. We have been saved in the past and we are still now saved and we continue to stand under this grace of God which has come to us in salvation. In regard to that resurrection from the death of sin in verses 1 through 3, it is finished and we can never now return to that state again. And we await what is to come in the surpassing riches of the kindness of God that he has for us in the future. Paul goes on to speak of this in verses 6 and 7. He says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now we should notice here that in this passage two times Two times Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Once in verse 1, and then again down in the beginning of verse 5. And two times he also tells us that we have been saved by grace. At the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And then again, In the beginning of verse 8, he says, by grace you have been saved. Two times he tells us these things because it is our minds are so reluctant to understand how desperate our situation and state was, dead in sin. And our minds are so reluctant to receive the truth that we have been saved only by grace, by grace alone. And he tells us now what this grace has done in verses 8 through 10. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In verse 9, he tells us that salvation is not of any works that we have done, that no one would boast. In verse 10, he tells us that our salvation has come to us, that we might walk in good works. For, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. God has worked in us to make us new creations in union with Christ Jesus. And his purpose is for good works. For good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are anything that the believer does that is according to the word of God. Out of a heart of grace and a desire for the glory of God. Good works are good. They are called good works because they are good in the sight of God. They are works that are most pleasing to him. They are works that he approves. 
They are works that he delights in. They are works that are according to his will, that bring glory and honor to him. Works of kindness, benevolence, love to the saints. Any effort that we make toward holiness, the whole manner of our life, in home, in church, our relations in the world, prayer, worship, fellowship, any good thing commanded in the scripture, any of these things are good works. And there are many passages in the Bible that speak of good works of the saints. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When the Philippians sent a gift to Paul, Paul called it a fragrant aroma, a fragrant aroma. He said, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul prayed for the Colossians in chapter 1, that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every, every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He prayed for the Thessalonians and he asked the Lord to comfort them and strengthen them Strengthen your hearts, he said, in every good work and word. So there are good works that we have been predestined to walk in. But what a most amazing thing this grace of God is in this passage. That those described back in verses 1 through 3, in that most dreadful state of sin and death, and Satan's kingdom, they now have new life and power and they are able to do things that are pleasing, well-pleasing in the sight of God. A most radical transformation has taken place. A new creation by the power of God. And this is what grace produces Someone will ask, well, how can this possibly be? That those in these early verses here, dead in sin under the power of the devil, sons of disobedience living in the lusts of their flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, how can they possibly be transformed so that now they walk in good works and are well-pleasing to God? How can this happen? The answer is really given in the beginning of verse 4. But God and what he can do in salvation. The answer is found in the words of Jesus. That the things impossible for men are possible with God. The answer is found in the words of the angel to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. Is anything too difficult for the Lord you remember those described in verses 1 through 3 are those also described back in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 that we saw this morning. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
That's man's state in sin. Every intent of the heart is only evil continually. But God says, I will give them a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within them. And I will change them so that they can be now well-pleasing in my sight. This is what I will do, God says. I will take those who are worthy of my wrath. And I will so transform them by my grace that they will be well-pleasing in my sight. So here we see in this passage the beginning of this renewal that takes place in the man under grace. The lifelong process is here set before us. We see it again in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4. And we'll read verses 17 through 24. Paul says, This I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you laid aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In verses 17 through 19, Paul describes the human race in spiritual darkness, pursuing endlessly their lusts and their pleasures. In verse 20, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Christianity is learning about Christ and his way of life. Christianity is not just doctrines or moral practices, but it is a learning of Christ. And it is only by learning of Christ that the great renewal can take place. In verse 21, he says, if indeed you have heard him, if you have heard his voice in the gospel, and having been taught in him, taught in union with him, by him, just as truth is in Jesus. So everything is in Jesus. We hear him, and we are taught in him, and we follow him, and all truth is found in him. And as we look now at verses 22 through 24, in which Paul describes the great change and the renewal that is taking place in us, we should understand that there are no commands in these verses, verses 22 to 24. There are no imperatives here. Paul is not telling us what we should do. He is telling us what God has done already in us by his grace. In verse 22, he says, 
that in reference to your former manner of life, those ways of sin described back in verse 17 through 19, he says, this is what you should know, this is what you should understand, and the best translation would be, you have laid aside the old self or the old man. You have laid him aside. The word old means old in the sense of decaying and rotting. And that's why he follows that by who is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. He is speaking here in the past tense. He is saying that we are no longer the old man that we once were. That old man has been laid aside and we will never be brought back to him again. In verse 23, he says, And you, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. A renewal, an inward spiritual renewal that takes place in the mind of Man, in verse 24, he says, And you have put on, you have passed, put on the new man, the new self, which is being restored now back into the image of God, which in the likeness of God has been created, created for the first time, brand new in you, in conversion, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So there has been this definitive break from who we once were. We are no longer that old man of verse 22. We are now the new man, the new creation of verse 24 in Christ. But while we are the new man, the new man has not yet been made perfect because sin still dwells in us and the new man must be the subject of this progressive renewal that verse 23 speaks of. And it is by this renewal that the new man is made more and more holy and conformed increasingly into the image of Christ. So the renewal is not in respect to the old man becoming the new man. And the renewal is not that we progressively put off the old man and progressively become more and more the new man. Because the old man is gone. And we will never be the old man again. The new man has come. And the renewal is in respect to the new man being increasingly sanctified and made more holy. Now, Paul goes on in verses 25 and following to give a series of very practical commands on how we should live. But we notice that he begins, verse 25, with the word therefore, which points us back to what he has just said in verses 23, 22 to 24. Therefore, because you are no longer that old man of sin, but you are that new man in Christ and this great renewal has begun in you. Therefore, and he begins to tell us now the ways in which we should live. We see the great renewal that has begun to take place in man under grace here. And the destiny of that renewal is that we be made in the likeness of God created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 
That's the end goal of the renewal. What was lost in the Garden of Eden will be regained again in the image of God in Christ. And we'll turn to another passage in the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'll read verses 5 through 10. He says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now in verses 5 through 9, Paul gives a series of practical exhortations in the Christian life to put away various sins. In verse 7, he states that we once walked in them when we were living in them. But the reason why we should obey all of these exhortations is based on the reality of what has already happened to us in conversion, and he tells us what that is at the end of verse 9. This is why you should do all these things. Since since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed. The idea here is of the laying aside of one garment, the old man, with his evil practices, and putting on the new man, who is being renewed according to a true knowledge, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And these are not two separate acts that take place. They are one. One act. We put off the old man. We put on the new man. All of this happened in the past, in conversion, You laid aside the old man with his evil practices. You have put on the new man. He speaks of us doing it in the sense that we did renounce the old way of life and we have embraced the new life. But God alone is the one who has put the old man to death and God alone is the one who has made us new creations, new men in Christ Jesus. The old man is gone and the new man has come. So we will never again be that old man that we once were. We are new in Christ. The old man is who we were in Adam. The new man is who we are now in Christ, in union with him. The old man could not be renovated as if there were only a couple things wrong with him and he could be restored. The old man could not be converted. 
The old man could not be renewed. The only thing that could be done with that old man is that he be crucified and put to death and laid aside and be completely replaced with a new man, a new creation. That's what has happened to us. We are no longer what we once were, but we are new men and women in Christ. The new indicates a newness, not just in time, but a newness in quality. The new man is entirely different in his moral quality than what he once was. The old man was from Adam. The new man is from Christ. What greater distinction could there be between the old man and the new? And this fact that we have We are no longer the old, but the new man is the basis of all the practical exhortations in this passage that we begin, that we make sure that we act according to who we really are. He continues there in verse 10. He says, you have put on the new man who is being renewed. Who is the one being renewed? The new man is being renewed. The old man is gone. The new man is being renewed. He says being renewed. Who is being renewed? Which speaks of an ongoing process. He is being renewed. The renewal is not complete in this life. The renewal has only begun. He is being renewed. Present, continuing, ongoing work of God in this life. Progressive Sanctification by the Holy Spirit. One of the good commentators on the Greek language is a man named Lenski. And Lenski tells us this, that this new man has a newness. He is new with a newness that is constantly being renewed. Every stain is cleared away and he is continually being restored. Always new. He never loses his newness in the sight of God. The verb here, who is being renewed, is in the passive tense, the passive voice, which means that We are not the ones doing the renewal. We are the ones being renewed. Christ is the one who is active. We are the ones who are being acted upon. We are the ones being renewed. It is not our work. It is his work in us. By our union with him by faith. This renewal is never left to us. It is his power that continually is at work in us. It is the renewal that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror in the gospel the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, are being presently transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The new man is not yet perfect, but he is continually under the work of Christ in this renewal. What is the final goal of the renewal? It's found at the end of verse 10, back into the image of God, to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, and that is Christ. So we are not being renewed back into the image of God in Adam, because Adam is gone, he is the old man, but we are being renewed into the image of Christ himself. Verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Whatever outward superficial distinctions exist among men, they are no impediment to this work of renewal. Every man and woman in every tribe, tongue, and people can come under this great work of Christ. He is risen to the throne of heaven. He has all power in heaven and on earth to give men salvation and the power to renew them. And his image is the final goal. Christ is all. The goal of this renewal. And he is in all. He has come to dwell in all of his people. To ensure this continuing work of this renewal. So we've seen in these passages. What man is. A little picture of what man is under grace. In this third state of the fourfold states of man. Man under grace is man who comes under the grace and the power of God by the Holy Spirit from Christ in salvation. And it is a great transformation from death unto new life. And there is this renewal that has begun and it continues. And it is a renewal that is taking place under his continuing power upon us. And it is progressive And yet it is not complete in this life. It will be complete in the world to come. And that brings us to the fourth of the four states, which is man in glory. The final state, the final end of all of God's work of salvation. We've already seen it hinted at in these passages. And it is our perfect conformity to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the final goal, the final state of man in glory. And we'll turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 and 30. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be, that he might become the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. 
In verse 29, Paul speaks of God's eternal purpose. That those whom he foreknew, which means he looked upon them from eternity in love, he then predestined them to a destiny, a goal. He is speaking of God's elect people. And his eternal destiny is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. The renewal that has begun here comes to its completion now in the world to come in our perfect conformity to the image of Christ. To be conformed to the image of Christ means to be like him first in holiness and in purity. It means to be like him in every way of his holy character. And it means to share the glory which belongs to him in heaven. Our souls will be made perfect in holiness. Our bodies will be transformed into the body of his glory in the resurrection. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 21. Christ who will transform the body of your humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power which he has even to subject all things to himself. And when this perfect conformity comes, then we will be in a state in which we will never be able to sin again. Holiness in every way for eternity. All August, Augustine called this last state of man in glory, non posse picera, meaning not able to sin. In the new heavens and the new earth, righteousness will dwell, and in that world, sin will be impossible. Perfect in holiness, in the presence of God, we will never be able to sin again. You remember Adam in the first state. Man in his innocence. He had holiness. But he was able to sin. But we will have something that Adam did not have. Something greater than Adam had in the first creation. We will have holiness in which it will be impossible for us to ever sin. And we will never be touched by sin. And we will never find any sin within ourselves Every faculty in us, mind, will, emotions, every faculty will be entirely, perfectly renewed, immutable in holiness forever, conformed perfectly to the image of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49, he says, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, this earthly body that we have now, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, referring to, to Christ. Verse 30 here speaks of the unbreakable chain of God's eternal plan of salvation. It began in eternity past, it will complete, he will complete it in eternity future, and his plan will come to its end in what is called here glorification. These he also, it is so certain he speaks in past tense, these he also glorified. 
And this glorification will be in that we are perfectly conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. That which was lost in the creation, the image of God, will now be restored in the image of Christ in us. And God's desire from the beginning to have a world of his image bearers will be finished. And he will have victory and triumph over all that has been against him from the beginning. There is no higher goal and there is no more wonderful destiny that God could ever give to us than to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus. To take us who were once such lost and ruined sinners In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, dead in sin, living in the power, under the power of the devil in his kingdom, indulging every kind of wicked lust under the wrath of God, to take sinners, ruined sinners such as that, and to save them by the blood of his Son, to cleanse them from all of their sins, to rescue them out of that state, to renew them, and then to perfectly conform them into the image of his Son. What higher goal could there ever be in all the universe than that? What more glorious destiny could there ever be? It is a work that only God could conceive of. It is a work that only he could accomplish by his love and his mercy and his power towards sinners. We do not know what it will be like. But John says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. It has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know who we are, the children of God, but we do not know yet what we shall be. But then John says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. The final sight of Christ perfectly transforming us into his image. The final destiny will come when Jesus descends from heaven on the last day and raises all men to stand before his throne In the day of judgment, and he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, and he will say to his people, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and then we will enter his eternal kingdom, and we will be those who have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, and are before the throne of God to serve him day and night, And he who sits upon the throne will spread his tabernacle over us. The final end of God's work of salvation. Man in his glory. In perfect holiness. Conformed to Christ. Impossible for us to ever sin again. So we've seen the four states. Man in innocence. Man in sin, man under grace, and man in glory.
I close with two brief applications. The first is that we may have great confidence in the midst of our struggles in this life. We do feel the struggle with remaining sin and the world, the flesh, and the devil. But our struggle is part of the renewal that Christ is working in us. The renewal of Christ and its final end in glory cannot take place in this world except through that great spiritual warfare and conflict that we are in. And sometimes we must pass through painful trials and our Heavenly Father must discipline us along the way. But we ought not to lose heart because everything that he does is guiding us toward that great goal of being with him in glory. Our trials are the testing of our faith that produces endurance. James says, let endurance have its perfect result. Let it have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And the apostle says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, afterwards, it yields its peaceful fruit of righteousness. So let us not lose heart in our struggles and in the discipline of our Heavenly Father upon us. We long for the warfare and the conflict to be over. And it will be over very soon. Peter says, even though now for a little while, just for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. God made his first image bearer in one day. But he has chosen to renew us into his perfect image again over many days. And the fact that he has chosen to do his work over a lifetime should in no way cause us to doubt the reality or the certainty of its final outcome. And it ought not to make us question his commitment to its completion because he will never leave his work undone. The question is not whether I feel this renewal taking place in me. Because I do not receive it by feeling. I receive it by faith. And by trusting in what God has said in his word. He will bring us to that final end. Those whom he called, he will justify. Those whom he justified, he glorifies. He will glorify us in the end. And bring us into that perfect conformity to Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, he says our inner man is being renewed day by day. And Paul said, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Here in chapter 8, we can look back to verse 18, where he says, 
For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How can Paul make that statement? Because the glory that is to be revealed to us is our perfect conformity into the image of Christ. That's the glory. And when Paul took that glory that he knew was so certain and he compared it to the sufferings of this present world, he said, the sufferings of this world are not worthy to even be compared to it. One last word tonight. That this glory that we speak of is only for believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who have come to him by faith and know the renewal that we speak of. Those who do not know Jesus in this life, Jesus will speak the most awful words to them on the last day. He will say, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The most terrible words that can ever be heard. Jesus has already told us what he will say on the last day. There is a way of safety. There is only one way of safety, and that is to come to Jesus, repenting of sins, confessing myself to be a sinner, and looking to Jesus alone to save me from all my sins. And he is a willing, able, powerful Savior. May Jesus come and open your eyes to believe in him tonight. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do bless you and thank you for your great mercy to us. Thank you for your great work of salvation that has raised us out of that pit of darkness, death, and judgment. We cannot even understand how desperate our need was, but you have done the great work and given us new life and brought us to your beloved Son. How can we thank you for all that you have done? Continue your great work in us, Lord Jesus. Oh, we know what sinners we still are and how great our need is. Continue the work of renewal and bring us to that final goal when we shall be conformed into the image of your Son. Lord, bless us, help us now in every way to be pleasing to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.